Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Manik Gupta to Trailblazers. You might remember him from his latest role as the chief product officer of Uber. He helped lead the company through its May 2019 IPO and grow to more than 100 million monthly active platform customers. Prior to Uber, Monik spent time as a product leader for Google Maps, where he mapped the world from scratch, literally. He also launched Google Maps in India. Monik began his foray into the tech sphere with an e-commerce startup called buyittogether.com, which he founded out of Singapore, right out of college and subsequently sold to a Norwegian company called CoShopper.com. Monik also spent time managing Hewlett-Packard's e-commerce initiatives in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as Japan. Today, having left Uber in late 2019, Monik serves as an advisor and investor to startups based out of the U.S. and India, and also founded a nonprofit called CVKey dedicated to helping businesses work through COVID-19. Being that he's someone who grew up in India and has built products that help millions of people across the world every day, I'm so thrilled to have a conversation with him today. Welcome to Trailblazers, Monik. Simi, thank you so much for having me. Wow, you should just write all my introductions in future. Thank you so much. (laughs) You'd be surprised how much I get that, but it's just more a testament (laughs) to all that you've done than my ability to put a bio together. So I want to start at the beginning. You founded this company called buyittogether.com. And from what I understand, it was an e-commerce marketplace that helped customers combine discounts on various products. How exactly did that journey begin? So, you know, this is back in 99, just to kind of contextualize for folks. So this was the height of the dot-com era, right? And I was a computer engineer in undergrad in Singapore. And throughout the course of my undergrad education, I'd been doing a bunch of different projects, side projects that you tend to do as an engineer. You love building things, you look at different options and so on. And it turned out that for my final year thesis project, I started working on e-commerce and payment gateways. And you know it's hard to imagine now, but if you think about 99, that was very new, especially in Asia, because uh, it was just sort of coming together. And then while I was thinking about what I should do next right out of college, One of my best friends, who also, by the way, grew up with me in the same city I grew up in India, who was with me in college, he pitched me this idea and he said, look, we should just do something together. You know, we have a lot of shared respect for each other. We have known each other for a long time. And why don't we just go build this idea? And the idea was very interesting to me. I think you described it well. It was really about demand aggregation. It was how you can pool the demand of strangers on the Internet and then help each of them extract volume discounts from merchants. So it's good for the merchant because they sell five products instead of one, and it's good for each of the individual consumers because they get it at a volume discount. And, you know, the internet really is built for that. It takes all this information and the friction away, and it uses the information that everyone has to be able to create this new magical experience. My friend's name is Amit, and when he pitched me this idea, I was like, yeah, let's go do it. You know, it makes sense. And I'd already done a bunch of exploration and coding as part of my project. And I already knew all the technologies that need to be built. And we got together with another person who was our classmate as well. And the three of us co-founded the company and we plunged right in. And did you ever expect that it would result in a sale to this Norwegian company and you would be able to profit off of it in that way? No, not really. I mean, we were very focused on just building the product, right? We trialed this with a bunch of our friends. And we asked each of them, we did a bunch of surveys during the university and asked people like, would you use a product like this? Even though that meant that you might have to wait a little bit, like a few days for you to get the product because we want to aggregate the demand over a period of few days. And everybody was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. This makes a lot of sense. I would love to do this, but I won't do this for every product. I'll do this for certain product categories. So, you know, when you start a company, especially from those kind of right starting conditions in my mind, it's never about selling out. It's never about I'm just going to go and build this incredible multi-billion dollar business or whatever the case might be and then get financially independent from that or anything like that. We were just tinkerers, right? We were just coming out of college and we just wanted to build something because it was cool, right? And that's what we did. We started in June of 99 and the frothiness of the dot-com bubble was such that in March, April of 2000, so barely like eight, nine months in, 
we had an offer on the table from this company saying they want to buy because they want to establish their presence in Asia and we had already created a pretty good traction. And it was hindsight 2020. I think we sold a little too early, to be quite honest. I think we had enough product market fit at that point that we would have continued to just stay on with it. But at the same time, we had investors already at that point, and we also didn't really know anything better. And we really liked the Norwegian guys. So it just sort of ended up being a good transaction for everyone. So that's how we ended up doing it. I love that point that you made on being tinkers and not necessarily setting out to build this multi-billion dollar company. Because even today, it seems that the companies that do achieve that level of success are often the ones that were heads down for a number of years. They were focused on finding that product market fit, pivoting if they needed to. And it almost seems like that's getting harder to do because founding a startup and being able to sell it or have it be acquired is a trendy thing to do. And people don't level set on the work that goes into it and the mindset that you need to have going in. So I appreciate you sharing that and the fact that that's what you and you, your co-founders went in thinking when you first built Buy It Together. I completely agree. And, you know, like they say, right, the best startups are created by people who are attracted to solving a problem in a unique way. And they're just obsessed about that problem and creating a solution that makes sense to them, their friends, their family, and then ultimately millions and billions of users all around the world. And I think there's something very pure and really effective about that approach, because then you're always clear in terms of why you did certain things. And those are the ones that eventually end up being very, very successful. Absolutely. I love that a ton. So I'm curious, after you sold this company, you joined HP to help them with some of their e-commerce initiatives. How did you decide to make that transition? How did you see yourself suddenly working in a corporate environment after having been this engineer and entrepreneur? Yeah, so it was an interesting journey for me. After we sold the company, I stayed on with the company. My, my startup was for another like couple of years to make sure that we survived the dot-com bust that happened. And I think the way HP came about was really more through a common set of friends. And the fact that I had a very massive regard for HP because I had done my internship at HP when I was in undergrad. And that's when I first started working in a U.S. Silicon Valley multinational. And again, for context, if you were in late 90s in Singapore, there were very few American multinational companies, Silicon Valley companies especially, that offered you a very compelling product and engineering-oriented job. And I got an opportunity to do just that. And I was just blown away. I still remember when I was an intern at HP, the amount of access I had to management and information, it just blew my mind. Like I could pretty much look at company meeting notes. I could go into company all hands. And those were things which were very unique to me, not having grown up in a culture like that. And yeah. that's the reason when I exited my company, HP was kind of on top of my list in terms of a company that I really wanted to associate with. And it turned out that the timing was very good because they themselves were going through this interesting transformation where they were competing in the marketplace with Dell. And Dell, as you know, at that time was going direct and selling everything online and through call centers and yep. HP was selling everything through retail channels. And they saw in me a change agent, somebody who could come mm -hmm. in, who had done that at a much smaller scale, obviously, than HP's, but somebody who had kind of the right ideas and the energy to come in and kind of drive the change from within. And uh, I was just super blessed to work with one of the best teams that I've ever worked with at HP, who were all bunch of builders and entrepreneurs and people who had the right sort of mindset to execute fast and move fast and continue to build stuff. So that's how I ended up at HP because the role was great. I had a lot of regard for the company and I always wanted to work in a Silicon Valley company. So that's how those things happen. You don't always hear people talking about working in tech in that way in terms of surrounding themselves with people that are really motivated and high achievers and getting to work in a company that's held in such high regard. So it's interesting to hear your framing and why you were so excited about that opportunity. How did that work with HP and their e-commerce division eventually translate to you working with Google in India and specifically on Google Maps? So I was at HP for about four years. And while I was there, I was building out all their e-commerce storefronts in Asia Pacific and Japan, and also allowing consumers essentially to buy HP's vast variety of products online. And then after putting in a few years there, my wife and I, we thought a lot about coming back to India because this was still in Singapore. And at that point, I had been in Singapore for almost 14 years and wow. I was really missing home and being close to parents. So we decided to move back to India 
I did an MBA at the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad. Uh, it was a one-year MBA, which was a really important criteria for me. I didn't want to spend two years of my working life at that point on an education. So it was a one-year MBA, which was also a really good entry point for us because it kind of reacquainted me to the new India because I had a very different version of India when I had left India in 92. And then I got wow. back there in 2007. So, you know, a lot had changed during that time. And it was great for me to build out a new network of people who were movers and shakers or would be movers and shakers and people who had like really good perspective. So I was very happy I made that transition. And then when I graduated in 2008, that's when I ended up joining Google. And, you know, it was interesting. Google, again, had an incredible amount of foresight to establish a product and engineering office in India back in 2006, 2007. So this was, again, very unprecedented. Most companies don't do that. You know, most companies, at least Silicon Valley companies, still have their product and engineering teams based out of the Bay Area and yep. somewhat in the U.S., but they don't go and set up autonomous teams outside. And Google had the foresight to do that. And I was lucky to be a part of that group where I joined as a product manager to work on maps in India. And the way I ended up working on maps was just really by happenstance. It was one of those projects that <laughs> nobody really was working on from a product perspective. And since I came in, they were like, would you like to work on this? And it was sort of related uh, to my previous experience because I'd done a bunch of e-commerce, which is, you know, the connection of physical and digital, right? Like you have a lot of logistics yep. and all that. So mapping is sort of that kind of a problem. I was assigned that project essentially. And then from that point onwards, I worked on maps for many years. I want to spend a second on something that you mentioned, which was this whole concept of the new India that you suddenly became a part of when you came back for your MBA and to work with Google Maps what was it like working on a product for such a large and emerging market? And obviously one that's still growing today, but how did your background being South Asian, having been born in India, inform your work with Google at that time? That's a great question. So when I started working on Google Maps in India, just to paint a picture, this is in 2008 and the iPhone had just come out. The first iPhone, right, had just come out in 2008. Wow. And first, the iPhone was not very popular in India. People were still not using smartphones as much in India at that time. But if you were to take Google Maps at that time and go to India on Google Maps, whether on your iPhone or desktop or whatever, and zoom all the way in, you know, most cities were not mapped. It was a blank map. You would not see the roads. You won't see addresses. You won't see the local businesses and so on because that data was just not there. And the other point of context is that at that time, there were probably about 30, maybe 40 million internet users in India. That's it, right? And also, I would say vast majority, maybe 90, 95% of them were in urban areas because rural areas didn't have connectivity and yep. didn't have the internet, right? So now this is important to kind of set the context in terms of now me coming in, having worked abroad, right? Worked in Singapore and have my own startup and all that, understood some of the Silicon Valley kind of ways to HP. And then coming in into a market where things were much harder to build, right? Because you have fewer users, you don't have enough resources, not from a company perspective, but from mapping, you need a lot of data and all that. None of that was existing. So I think the thing that really struck to me, and which I think was turned out to be a useful thing from my identity, going back to your question, was I moved to Bangalore to join Google in India, and I had never lived in Bangalore. Even though my parents were living there, but I had never lived there, my wife had never lived there. And then I asked a lot of my friends who were in Bangalore or my colleagues who were in Bangalore, and a lot of them were immigrants into the city, right? And this is where there is this sort of massive mass migration that happened in India, especially in the tech sector, where a lot of people from all over the country moved to Bangalore, right? Because that's where yes. most of the jobs were. And in doing so, what I realized is that if I'm an immigrant, even though I'm an Indian and I'm an immigrant in Bangalore, mm -hmm. I realized that I actually don't know most places. I don't know where to go just to get my dry cleaning done. I don't know which restaurants are good. I don't know the ways around it. So for me, that was the key insight. When I said we people in India would use maps a lot more, and that was very counterintuitive because everyone told me that nobody would use a product like maps in India. Why? Because wherever you need to go, there are people on the road and you can always ask people, you know, which direction ask I need someone. to go. And yep. so on. Ask someone, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, people who have been to yeah. India, they know that. You just roll down your window and you say, hey, how do I get there? And everybody told me, ah, who's ever going to use maps? It's not going to work. But then I was thinking deeply about it. I was like, of course it would work because there are millions of people like me who have no clue. And why wouldn't we have the same product that we have in the US? Why don't we have it in India? 
So, so that kind of really important insight from my perspective, combined with like, hey, why can't India be as good as the rest of the world? I think those two things kind of really drove me into prioritizing a lot of the work we were doing and building the best map the world had ever seen for India. Even. So that's how we kind of get started. And then we started working on it. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because I, in my mind, can't even imagine a world in which Google Maps doesn't exist. It feels so obvious now, but that's easy for me to say having the product in my hands every day. And I remember that. I remember when I was a kid and we'd be in India and we'd be looking for the local Pizza Hut or McDonald's or the tailor we should go to. And you'd roll down the window in the car and you'd turn to the rickshaw driver in the next lane and you'd say, hey, where is this place? How do I get there? So it's interesting to hear that that's the pushback that you got. And you said, no, this is a product that still could be useful to this community. You mentioned how your experiences seeing people commute into the city who weren't natives of that area and your personal experiences informed your building of maps in India and the building of this product. What are some other ways in which you feel that you were able to uniquely identify the ways in which you should build this product, being that you were Indian, being that you shared in this background and community growing up? Again, an excellent question. So I grew up in a city called Lucknow in India. And Lucknow is in the northern part of India. It's debatable, but it's often also called the food capital of India, right? The food is just amazing (laughs) because, you know, it's a city that is over a thousand years old, more than a thousand years old. And it has had so much of cultural infusion from the Mughal era and from the kings initially and so on. So the food and the culture and the architecture of that place is just very unique in that sense. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, there were a few things that really struck out as I was building products. And that has been true for all the products that I've built. One is I grew up in a very kind of a community setting, right? So I grew up in a neighborhood where my dad used to be, I mean, he's a designer for fighter aircraft. And we used to live in the locality associated with the factory. So it was like a factory township as part of Lucknow. And I still remember that the community aspect over there where everyone knew everybody and everybody was helping each other was like a huge part of me growing up, significant. And that even till today, whenever I'm building products and even with maps, one of the biggest unlocks that we had was when we asked the community to help build the map. This is where we asked users to add information that they knew because we could not get that information from anywhere else. And doing that at scale is what really allowed Google to build its maps. So community aspect growing up, when you know that you can ask someone for help and people are just willing to help each other, that was like a big part of me growing up. The second one was we also had to manage uncertainty significantly. There was never a day where things will go according to plan, right? Because, you know, sometimes you'll have power outages or something will break down or the water won't come. You know, all those things that are pretty common in that era growing up, I still feel that built a lot of resilience in the way we build products. I mean, I build products, for instance, where anytime you do anything in life, especially when you're building products, you'll have all these roadblocks, right? And oftentimes teams will just give up like, oh, you know, this is really hard. We can't do this. And for me, it was like, well, it's okay. You know, things are still working. We just have to keep going and managing the uncertainty and still building the product, right? So the flip side of that also is you also have to perhaps give more information to users sometimes who grew up in that environment because they don't trust the information they get, right? So sometimes when a tool is giving them information, because they're so used to things being broken, they don't trust the information they get. So you have to basically further adorn the information with other aspects that they can trust, right? So like for the longest time, one of the things was in Google Maps in India, we would give information about the name of the shop, right? The name of the shop, we will give the category, we'll even give photos. But for some reason, you know, for various reasons, actually, we didn't give the phone number, right? And if we didn't give the phone number, people didn't trust it. They're like, yeah, this is a fake listing, right? It doesn't have a phone number. When we gave the phone number, not that people were going to dial the number, but like when we started giving the phone numbers out, it just elevated the trust that people had in that data because they were like, well, now it has a phone and I can call somebody. Not that I'm calling anybody, but I can if I want to, right? So there are all these sort of minute elements of how users, based on my own identity and my own kind of growing up, I feel are so important in product development when you put yourself in the shoes of your users, especially with the learned shared experience that you have had, you just end up building really interesting products. Yeah, I want to take a second to summarize a really beautiful key takeaway from what you just said. And it's the fact that being based out of the US, sometimes I think people who are building products and building companies can forget that this is a hyper-connected market. 
It's a banked market. It's a developed country. And to some degree, building for our communities can be a little bit easier than it is in building in emerging markets, as is demonstrated by what you just talked about. But having the opportunity to go and build in those markets and understand how they work and build systems for more complicated markets can equip you with skills that help you for the rest of your career. And at the same time is helping a community that might have not previously had those products built for them. And I just love that point on resilience and the fact that that's a skill that can help you over the course of your career when you start by working in a market like India and then try to translate that into a market like the United States. That persistence and resilience is a really, really important point to make. And I truly find it hilarious that the phone number is what set you guys apart and really convinced people to start using the product. Yeah. So obviously, you mentioned working on Project Ground Truth, which was basically building maps from scratch. And you were also there to lead Google's acquisition of Waze. What are some of the most memorable parts of your experience working on those projects that you carry with you to this day? So Ground Truth was a really ambitious project at Google. This is how we actually decided to build maps from scratch. So in many markets, people have seen the street view cars. They run around and they have cameras on the car and then they pick 360 degree pictures. A lot of that imagery collection was done to help build maps from scratch. So, you know, over the course of several years, we really improved and upgraded the maps of many markets using the Ground Truth project. And I was running that project for a few years myself. And one of the most interesting things that we did, even till today, I remember, was when we decided that we are going to not only map all the roads, but we are also going to map the lanes in each road, right? So this was kind of the next level of detail. And I still remember the engineer who was working on it came up with the idea and he proposed, oftentimes in Google, in companies like Google, the conversation starts with an engineer or a PM or whoever for the matter, just saying, let's go do this. And then people would say, why would we do that? And then the question answer would be, why not? Because we can. And then, (laughs) of course, it will always kind of evolve into like the right conversation. But it's this potential and this promise of technology And the ability for people to build that together is what kind of drives innovation in these companies. So when we started looking at that, we said, okay, let's do a pilot in terms of how are we going to map each of these lanes, right? Because you'll have to use satellite imagery, right, to be able to look at the lane and then hand draw each of these lanes for millions of kilometers of road, right? Millions of miles of road. And it was interesting because when we first started doing this, it was very, very laborious. So we had like a massive team, an operations team that was actually hand drawing each of these lanes, looking at imagery. And then over the years, we got to a point where we came up with better tools so that we could use the tool to just take a road and essentially click a couple of buttons on our tool. And then it automatically draws some lanes on it with some expected road widths and stuff like that. Because the exact lane marking was not that important. It was just a concept of how many lanes it has and whether it's a turning lane and stuff like that. And why were we doing that? We were doing that because we wanted you, if you were using Google Maps in your car, right, and you were driving, even in the US for that matter, if you're driving on a highway, and let's say there are two exit lanes on the highway, on the freeway, and you have to make a left, we would tell you to stick to the second from the right lane when you exit. Because if you are on the rightmost lane, then all of us have been there. You're in the rightmost lane and then, oh, damn, I got to go left. <laughs> so then you're like struggling because yep. there's another car over there and whatnot. So we wanted to remove all those sort of failure cases and all those frictions for people. And just to kind of enable that magical experience, we had to obviously go and build kind of this ecosystem behind. But that's like a testament to how the team was so focused on solving a customer pain point and just improving the quality to the next level. And that still resonates with me as one of the most fun projects that I ever worked on. Yeah, it's crazy to think how you're so meticulous about something that seems to some degree so mundane, but I experience that all the time when I use Google Maps where I'm like, okay, I know this is going to set me in the right lane for where I have to go next. And also just thinking about that in India where lanes are basically not a concept. (laughs) That's amazing to think about, you know, how much energy and effort goes behind these products. I'm curious What were some of the key learnings from spending time in maps at Google that translated to your work at Uber, where you worked on maps and marketplace? Yeah, so Google Maps really basically set the foundation for organizing the physical world, right? And then making it accessible through a digital kind of interface, right? So you could query the whole world, if you will, and see how to get there and, you know, all that. And that essentially allowed companies like Uber to be born, right? Imagine if Google Maps had not 
done all the work that they did to create the maps, I don't think Uber would have been as effective. The company would still have yeah. been formed because there were other mapping companies, but the magic that you get from Uber in terms of getting matched to the driver and the ETA that you see, you know, it says five minutes, six minutes, and it's super precise in most cases. All that happens because there's this underlying kind of mapping layer of technology, which is underneath all of that powering that magical experience. So for me, the reason why I moved from Google to Uber was I just saw this company, Uber in this case, creating a brand new consumer experience and a consumer behavior. You know, the advice that we always used to get was don't sit in a car with a stranger like ever, right? <laughs> and now you have millions of people sitting in a car with a stranger every day, right? And to yeah. me, that was wild. It was amazing for me to see how consumer behavior had shifted, right? And transformed into a very different pattern all using the concept of mapping and underlying sort of technologies. So I just wanted to be a part of that team. I wanted to know and go there and learn how that is happening and what can I do to help? I have a lot of the mapping background. I have an international background. How can I sort of help? So that's how I ended up at Uber. And the first project that I worked on at Uber was to just help them improve their mapping technologies, which made sense because I'd done maps for so many years. And I went in and I started really improving the quality of the mapping infrastructure at Uber so that they can just improve the service overall. Yeah. And you were eventually appointed chief product officer at Uber after serving an interim version of the role. Did you expect that to happen? Yeah. So when I took on the interim role, it was for about six months. It's kind of the longest job interview I've ever been on, right? And <laughs> to be quite candid, I wanted to be the chief product officer, but I wasn't sure whether I would get it. Because, uh, you know, I just grown up in the company and I hadn't managed such a large team before. So I had my own self-doubt that I'll actually be able to sort of take that and be effective. But I have to give a lot of credit to my manager, my boss at that time, Dara Koshasai, who was the CEO of Uber, for taking a bet on me, right? He took two bets on me. First bet was he appointed me as the interim role and he was very clear. He's like, don't get any ideas. This is just an interim role. I was like, okay, boss, I got it, right? Yeah, this is an interim role. So I have to prove myself he's a hard taskmaster. So he did that. And then over the course of the six months while I was doing that, I guess I proved to him and to the rest of the organization that I can do the job on a full-time basis. And I already know everybody. I know how to make things work. And then he basically said, okay, you are our CPO and we're going to go public, right? So I kind of earned it, but it took me some time. And I'm actually happy that I got that time to flex my muscles and sort of learn what it takes to be successful in that role. And I think I was better prepared for it. Yeah, I love that you were basically trying out for the role for six months and clearly it worked out, but definitely much more of an involved job interview than is typical for that sort of role. Yeah. When you did take on this role, I'm curious because there must have been a transition. A lot of the work that you'd previously been doing was more in the weeds, dealt more with the technical aspects of the product. And I'm sure being elevated to CPO came with much more of a managerial component because you were dealing with larger teams of people. What were some of the key learnings you had now having that manager's mindset as a part of your role? Yeah, so when I became the CPO, I was managing all more than a 1,100 person organization across six different functions from product management, design, data science, and so on. And I think for me, there are a lot of interesting management lessons that I picked up in that space. One was that the people management aspect of the job was a much larger component of my job than I originally imagined. So there was always something going on with regards to people, right? Somebody was leaving, somebody was unhappy, or somebody was maybe too happy, or whatever the case might be, right? Like we were kind of always figuring out how to have the right shape of the organization and ensure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. So that was like a good learning for me that you have to prioritize those things. And not only do you have to prioritize them as a leader, you also have to have systems in place so that things can kind of happen at scale. Otherwise, if you're just going to be dependent on a few people to do it, it's just very hard because everything is very arbitrary, right? So that was one. The second one was I felt that my job as a communicator and just the person who basically always keeps setting the context for the entire organization was very, very important. I would go into many meetings and so on, and I would learn a lot, right? Because everyone's telling me information. But I didn't realize that a lot of people didn't have the same context because they were not getting the same information I was getting, and they were also not in all the meetings that I was in. So I had to do a lot of extra work to essentially communicate and over-communicate to the organization. What are our priorities? Why are we doing certain things? What's working? What's not working? What's my top of mind? 
I used to write a monthly top of mind long email to the entire organization saying, here's my top of mind. But I was very transparent in terms of what I have seen from my vantage point, what's working, what's not working, where do we need some extra help, what is happening within the company overall. And I used to always get a lot of responses to that email from all the different places in my organization. And people used to give me more information, which was very helpful. So that was the second one. The third one was, especially in the product organization, your job as a product leader is to always have a good combination of long-term product vision in terms of where you want to take things, right? And combine that with very hardcore execution. You know, oftentimes you will find people who want to be kind of doing one versus the other, and you can do that. You have to do both. You have to have the vision so that everyone's rowing in the same direction broadly and they're aligned to it. And at the same time, if they're not working hard and getting things done, then you have got nothing to show, right? So that sort of combination, it just gets amplified when you're running a much bigger organization. So how do you structurally solve that? There was a lot of learning for me in, in that aspect as well. If I needed to be taking notes, I would be right now because I have to tell you, as I mentioned to you earlier, I work at a startup and we're a team of five right now in the media space. And one of our biggest questions is, how do we scale what we're doing with five people for the next five people and the five people after that and so on? And it's not an easy thing to do. Sometimes it's really easy to try and keep a process being run by one person the way it is now, but that doesn't translate in the longer term. So I have to tell you, I might have to steal some of these lessons in terms of top of mind and all these other things you did while at Uber and transitioning into that more managerial role. Something that I definitely want to spend some time on, just given that this podcast is called South Asian Trailblazers, is the fact that over the course of working at Google, first in India and then coming to Silicon Valley to work with them and then eventually Uber, you made a physical location change. How did that impact your work in any way and how you saw yourself leading product within these companies? Yeah. So, you know, I visited the United States for the first time in my life in 2003. And I was actually visiting my brother who was a student here in one of the colleges. And I still remember distinctly at that time, I just come out of my startup and I was about to join Hewlett Packard going back to our previous conversation. And I remember coming to the US and renting a car and driving here with my brother from Long Island to New Jersey, right? That's where he used to study in Long Island. And the vast expanse of this country and the openness, right? As you're driving, if you're on a road trip, anybody who has been on a road trip in the US, you look around and you just see so much land, right? And you see so many open kind of spaces, which is so different for me. I was living in Singapore for a long time, right? Which is such a dense city. And then I grew up in India, which is there's all this construction going around. You don't have that many open spaces. And even if you do, they're not as well organized as in the US. I still remember vividly that in 2003, I had this feeling when I was driving on the freeways, how big and open the space is. And, and there was this promise of anything is possible, right? That is when I really fell in love with the US, where I was like, wow, wow. this is places for big ideas, right? So big ideas, it's big, it's open. Everybody I met during that time, we'll go into a gas station, we'll do whatever. I was a little bit confused. People will say, how are you? And I'm like, am I supposed to answer that? And then my brother was like, no, 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 you're not supposed to answer that. You're just supposed to also ask, how are you? I was like, that's weird, but that's okay. So, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. all those interesting things for me coming to US for the first time, I was like, wow, just taken very positive by the interactions that I had and all that. So from that point onwards, I always wanted to move to the US and do something, right? And it, of course, happened a few years later for me as part of Google. And I think one of the things that has inspired me about moving out here, and I'll connect back to my identity again in a second, is the ability to really think big, unconstrained by resources, right? And the power of idea, anybody's idea. It's a very egalitarian society, anybody's idea, and just being able to amplify that and connect with people who had these crazy ideas to change the world. Maybe that's more of a Silicon Valley thing. I don't know. But I just felt that that's what has driven my thinking in terms of building any product that I built. So a lot of that sort of formative experience and thinking has sort of gotten into how I build products. And I think especially in Silicon Valley coming out here, I just see a lot of representation for South Asians. If you look at so many tech companies, the leaders are South Asian folks. And I'm not just talking about the CEOs, but even VPs and engineers and product people. And that made me feel very welcome especially in the Bay Area, made me feel very welcome. And I was like, I can also do that. If yeah. that person can do it, I can also do it. They came from the same background as I did. I also went to good schools. I've also worked hard. And as long as I kind of put my mind to it, I can also achieve it. 
So that's sort of been the undercurrent for me in terms of my wife and I and our son, we are going to complete 10 years in the United States this year. And it's just been amazing for us to be able to be part of that American dream, if you will, coming all the way from South Asia. Oh, I love hearing that. And I have to tell you, I feel like you just nailed the undercurrent of this podcast, which is being able to look at someone like you and say, oh, he can do that. So I can definitely do that too, right? And I think what you just said really captures the beauty of what you find in America, the immigrant mentality. And also the point of this podcast is not only being able to share in a cultural background, but being able to look at someone to find career inspiration and professional inspiration and other life inspiration. So I really love the way that you just encapsulated that sentiment. And to that point on inspiration, a lot of it is drawn from the fact that the people that I bring on this podcast are undoubtedly very successful. And that is no better exemplified by the fact than what Uber CEO Dara Kesashahi said about you and your work at Uber. And he said, you have been the driving force behind some of Uber's most ambitious launches, including Uber Rewards, Uber Pro, and Uber Wallet. Can you speak to some of those initiatives, the ones that survived and the ones that no longer exist? Yeah, that was a really interesting time for Uber to build out a lot of those new product initiatives that we just talked about. Uber had like a really interesting challenge in front of it, I would say around 2018 or so, when we started really looking at retention of customers as an important thing to focus on. Uh, We were retaining customers pretty well, but overall, we felt that there are a lot of these high value customers who are getting a lot of value on the Uber platform. We were not doing anything special for them, right? So you could be somebody who's spending a lot of money with Uber or could be spending just a little bit money with Uber, and we were just kind of treating you the same way. So that's the reason why the loyalty programs were born, the Uber rewards and so on were born. And similarly for drivers, by the way, it's a two-sided marketplace. So similarly for drivers, there were some drivers who were getting the most out of the Uber platform and there were other drivers who were probably much less active on the platform, if you will. So that is where we did Uber rewards and came up with a list of benefits that as you go up in the tiers, like a loyalty program, as you go up in the tiers, you can essentially get much better benefits. And I think it's been broadly successful. I wouldn't say it's been magically successful yet. I think there's still a lot of tweaking that needs to be done. But it has given users, both riders and drivers, another way for committing their loyalty on the Uber platform because they get much more out of it. The Uber Wallet initiative was one of the most ambitious initiatives that we undertook. This was really about the fact that because Uber had so many financial transactions happening on its platform in terms of people taking a ride and then drivers getting paid, what can we do to really help drivers, starting with the drivers, what can we help them do with regards to improving their cost structure. So just to give you an example, every driver spends money on gas, right? And they spend money on car maintenance and so on. So we came up with some ideas around, can we provide like an Uber wallet and a financial services kind of model where a driver can, because they're part of the Uber network, they can essentially get volume discounts for some of their gas usage, or they can use their money in a much more effective way. Can we stretch their dollar further, right? So a lot of those things that we looked at. I think the company made a decision not to go down that path in a big way. And I think that was the right decision eventually because, you know, you also want to be focusing on certain things and not every company can do everything. So I think they decided not to go down that path early to mid 2020. But I think that all the information, all the ideas are still there. And who knows, maybe in a few years, it will pick it up again. But that was a pretty promising idea as well. Super interesting. I always think it's funny when you ask someone what Uber is, the automatic answer is, oh, it's a ride sharing app. But the people that are really paying attention know that it's so much more than that. It's becoming a broader marketplace. And that's what the grander vision was built on. That's what investors and everyone else was sold on. So it's always interesting to hear behind the scenes how that vision is actually being brought to life. On the converse side of things, as you're talking about stretching the dollar, working with employees and the contractors and the users of the app and product. Uber has also faced a lot of tough legal battles over the years. First, the exit of Travis Kalanick, the founder and former CEO of Uber, as well as the more recent battle with the state of California about whether drivers should be categorized as full-time employees and receive commensurate benefits as a result. I know that you left post-IPO in 2019, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of these legal challenges and battles it's been facing in recent years. As a society, we have a big challenge in front of us, which is we need to all deeply think about what is the future of work, especially in today's world. I mean, if you look at COVID, what COVID has done, what does work even mean? 
right? Of course, there's an aspect of a contractual obligation between an employee and an employer. I get that. But people are remote. People are doing different things. There's a whole creator economy happening where people are figuring out that I don't need to be kind of tied to one company. I can do multiple different things and really express (laughs) my creativity. And, you know, that's kind of working for many people, right? So I'm a big proponent that I feel that a lot of the discussion is kind of flawed because it's antiquated. It's kind of cast in an older version of the world where you have this only one way that people can work. And I think what companies like Uber are pushing, and I believe very heavily in that and strongly in that, they're pushing a different model, which is essentially everyone has their own choice. Nobody has to wake up in the morning and say, I have to be there at 9 a.m. If you want to work, you work. You want to make money, great. If not, you do something else, right? Of course, as a society, we also need a safety net. And that's important. I totally get that. So I've been watching a lot of this very closely after I left Uber. And if you look at what happened in California with Prop 22, when the general public voted, for Ubers and Lyfts and all these other companies' uh, version of the future of work, that was a pretty strong endorsement of how the general public thinks about it. That's why it was put for ballot, right? And now that that's done, I do believe that as a society, we have to figure out how to build a new model of the future of work, which is flexible and it's on people's own terms, and then figure out how to kind of provide them the right safety net. And I think there are some really good ideas around that, and we just have to keep iterating on that part of the discussion and not kind of keep going back to like how the world used to be or how we think the world should be in the past. So that's sort of where my thoughts are. Super interesting also because we saw what happened when the measure was going to go into effect. And then basically overnight, the decision was reversed because everyone was like, they can't suspend operations. What are we going to do? And so I think you can't just view these things in isolation. You have to view it and how it affects the grander context of society. So I totally agree. And the fact that it plays into the future of work trend is such an important piece. How did you ultimately make the decision to leave Uber post IPO? Yeah. So, you know, coming up to November of 2019, I had been exactly four years at Uber and it was an insane treadmill for me. Like I was just running nonstop and I went through so many different kind of transitions within my four-year career that I was really looking to do something different and probably recharge with my family and kind of figure out what I really want to do next. And if you have a really important job in a company, you can't just do that, right? You can't just say, hey, you know, I'll continue to do my job and I'll also recharge. I mean, it doesn't happen that way. So I made a decision. I talked to my family. I had a really good conversation with Dara, our CEO. He was very supportive. And we decided that it's a good time. If, If I'm going to actually make the transition, it's a good time to make it towards the end of the year because that's when a lot of the things are already in place. I'd already done all the planning for 2020, not knowing COVID, obviously, but we had all the plans for 2020. I had all the management team. I had recruited a fantastic team that could take over from me and not skip a beat. So all those things were kind of lined up and that's when the timing felt right and I decided to take a clean break. So that's what I did. Yeah, and I imagine it wasn't an easy decision, but appreciate the thoughtfulness behind it. You mentioned in your note when you were leaving that you were going to spend some time recharging, but also looking into some trends around consumer internet. What have you uncovered? Yeah, so the trend that I'm most excited about, and I've spent a lot of time and I'm spending time on this, is around digital healthcare. Okay. That's the trend that I'm most bullish on right now. And this is not something, obviously, I plan going into my break because people's mindsets were not there yet. But because of COVID in particular, I think a lot of people have, a few things have happened. Firstly, people have just become much more aware that they need to look after their own health, right? This itself is like a huge improvement because when I talk to a lot of my doctor friends and ask them, you know, I go in as a technologist and I say, hey, you know, I want to build this amazing app and I want to do this and that. And they're like, Manik, let me tell you this. Majority of the people, they already know what to do to be healthy. They need to eat less and they need to exercise. And guess what? Nobody does that, right? Or very few people do that. The point is that everybody's thinking about it much more. And I do feel that for a large chunk of the population, that trend is actually going to be sustainable. Once COVID goes away, it doesn't mean that we'll all forget about it. I think we have gone through this sort of, again, this traumatic experience. So people will remember that. And then the second thing that has happened is you have these creative entrepreneurs who are now coming to this space. A lot of them are technologists and so on. And we're like, wait, why is this problem so unstructured? Why haven't we solved this? Why is it so hard for you to get an appointment on the same day from your doctor? Why do I, if I get a referral from my primary care physician to my specialist, why does it take a week? Why do they have to call me? Don't call me. Like you should all be through a digital kind of interface. So there are all these sort of interesting patterns in the consumer side where I can pick up my phone and on WhatsApp, I can call my mom in India on video without skipping a beat, right? But if I want to just talk to my doctor, 
I can't do that. That doesn't make any sense, right? So yeah. a lot of those things, consumer sort of techniques are now getting into healthcare. And I think that's kind of the trend that I'm most excited about in terms of where that goes over the next few years, because I think it's just going to improve the overall experience on such a practically the largest market in terms of revenue for the United States. And are you delving into this trend as a builder or as an investor or both? Right now, I'm looking at that as both because there are enough really smart people who are building all these things where I feel I can amplify their work just by helping them as an investor. And I also started my own nonprofit last year in healthcare to fight COVID. It's called CV Key. And that was kind of me taking a shot at being a builder. And that also sort of double confirmed my hypothesis and my interest in that space. And I just learned a lot in terms of how many things are broken and at the same time, how many things are actually working well. So it just gave me a much broader perspective, having built a product and kind of launched it out. Yeah. And I know CV Key is dedicated to helping businesses learn how to reopen safely in the wake of COVID-19. What have been your key learnings in terms of helping those businesses? It's been a really interesting set of learnings, right? So the first one is healthcare is still pretty much an information asymmetry problem. What I mean by that is you go and see an expert, which is a doctor, or let's say an epidemiologist for COVID. They're the experts, so they have a lot more information. And you as a user don't have that much information, right? So there is this aspect of, I just have to trust people. But the problem is, in many cases, not so much doctors, but as we have seen with COVID, a lot of people, even the experts don't know what's happening, right? So then how do you build trust? How do you kind of get to a point where you want to influence a certain behavior change? You know, simple things like, okay, wear a mask. If you go and Google wear a mask, you'll have equal number of articles that will talk about how effective it is and another equal number of articles that will say it's not effective, right? So then what are you going to do? Well, then you listen to some public figures and all that. So the point I'm making is for CVKey, our goal was first and foremost to try to give the most precise and kind of well-calibrated information at a community level. So a lot of times when you interact with digital health products, they will say things like, the classic example is you take a symptom checker, right? So, you know, were you sick yesterday or have you tested for COVID and all that? At the end of that journey, it will typically end up saying, oh, there might be something wrong. Go see your doctor. How is that useful? Like, that's not really useful. Sure, I could have done that up front. So what we did instead is we kind of combined with communities and we got very detailed, precise guidance from a community for that community so that if somebody has a question, they don't go see a doctor. They can call a number and they can talk to somebody who knows what's happening in the community and they can guide them, right? So we kind of made a hyper-local community-driven approach around healthcare questions and ability to stay safe. So that was one big part of it. And I think that approach actually worked pretty well. And it resonated with lots of people that we went out with. And then the second thing is, it's pretty apparent and we saw it. As United States, we didn't do a good job with testing at all. If you had done a much better job with testing and making testing available to everybody, we were seeing this in our data. If you were testing everybody, we would have caught a lot of those infections way early and kept the community safe. I'm very happy that we are doing a much better job in vaccination, and that's awesome. But if you had done a similar kind of job with testing, I think we would have really reduced the unfortunate impact it has had in the U.S. with respect to deaths and how many people have gotten sick and so on. So a lot of those operational elements is what we kind of picked up as learnings as we built out our product. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I appreciate the community-driven approach. A previous guest I had on season one of the podcast, Mitra Kalita, she's the former SVP at CNN, and she actually left to build community-based media ventures. And so much of her thesis in in the midst of COVID is based on providing information to hyper-local communities, because that's the best resource for you to figure out where to get tested, where to get your vaccine. And I think we're going to see that as a component of all types of businesses moving forward, definitely from the healthcare perspective. But I think just being able to maintain that community element is going to become so much more important in the building of businesses going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I know a lot of what you're spending your time on today is being an investor in startups based out of US and India. How are you putting your past learnings to work? What's your thesis? For me, A lot of my past learnings are around, I would say, three things. One is because I've been a product and engineering operator for over 20 years. So the three things that always stand out and I'm able to both assess companies in that manner and also help them as an operator. The first one is how do you go from being a one product company to a multi-product company? That's not an easy transition, right? So oftentimes CEOs and founders don't think through that very carefully. And before they know it, they suddenly have like five products and they're like, whoa, how do we manage allocation? How do we manage the positioning in the market? You know, all that stuff. 
So I've had the opportunity to be part of companies where I've done that multiple times. So, so that's one area that I always look at. I look at the potential and I also look at kind of helping them. The second one for me is the international focus. I'm very big on companies that have products that can scale internationally and globally because I feel that the markets are so big, even outside the U.S., and oftentimes people don't think about that. And my ability to kind of work with the team to help them launch globally is an area that's very attractive to most companies that I work with. And then the third one and final one is over the years, I've just developed a very good network of other people who are either looking for new opportunities. I mentor a lot of people, especially on the product side. So I always know who's kind of out there in the market. And especially as they're looking for more early stage kind of roles, and I'm able to make those connections and help my portfolio companies as well. So that's sort of the thesis and the help that I can provide kind of falls into those buckets. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for you? At this stage, I'm continuing to invest in advice, a bunch of companies in the US and in India. And I'm always talking to some interesting companies to see if I can help them in more ways compared to just being an advisor. So I'm looking at different options and seeing if I want to get back in the game and do another stint of being an operator and so on. So at the same time, I'm having a lot of fun doing what I'm doing and learning a lot, connecting with people and so on. So I'm in, at that phase in my life where the intellectual challenge is most important and the ability to create an impact is equally important. So those are the two things that I'm really looking to prioritize. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I especially appreciate the point on finding something that's intellectually challenging and stimulating. I think it gets harder and harder for us to remember that and prioritize that as we get older in life. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you so much for your time. This was truly such a wonderful conversation to understand your work and all the different companies that you've traversed, the products that you've built that are helping millions of people around the world today and getting to hear a little bit about the journey that's gotten you there. I'm excited to see what's next and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for being so thoughtful about reflecting on your identity and the work you've done. Thank you, Shimi, for taking me back the memory lane <laughs> and helping me think through some of my experiences. It's always good to kind of reflect back and see where you came from. Uh, and I'm very blessed and grateful for the opportunities I've gotten over the years. So, you know, it's been great. Well, thank you so much. This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook.